we like to say this is not who we are. This shouldn't be who we are. But in a lot of ways, this is what America is. Now we get to choose whether it is the America that we will live in. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and co-hosting with me is the very talented, very witty LA lawyer, Rudy Salo. Our topic today is about the events that unfolded at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. And our guest is president of the Constitutional Accountability Center, Elizabeth Wydra. We are going to be talking about the causal factors. What does impeachment mean? What are the lessons? And a little bit of history about constitutional law. Before we get started, I want to thank everyone who has rated and reviewed the show. If you haven't rated us yet and you're on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. If you'd like to support the show, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash good is in the details. Okay, now let's talk January 6th. I think this is a first, Rudy, where... Um, Normally we have two academics on here and then Rudy the lawyer and this time we've got two lawyers <laughs> and me. Yeah, and the remember. philosopher. So remember. Rudy always says that philosophers don't give any kind of answers. We're just pondering. Well, pondering well, to, yeah, go ahead. Let me just say Elizabeth <laughs> Elizabeth's actually the real lawyer cuz she um, she was sure. she was a, she was a litigator. She was at Quinn Emanuel and we transactional lawyers um, kind of bow down to the litigators. They're the, they're the ones that actually know the law. They're the ones that need to argue the law. They're the ones that go to court. I'm just a, you know, a, a, what, what do they call me? A document monkey. You know, that's what <laughs> litigators, litigators make fun of transactional lawyers for not being real lawyers, but that's okay. I, I, no. I, I tried litigation for two years. I wasn't cut out for it. So there's really only one real lawyer on this podcast. Well, normally I'm totally useless. Like people are like, do you have any thoughts on this contract dispute? I'm like, I have no idea. But I'm like, oh, do you want to know intricacies of the 14th Amendment? It's my moment. <laughs> I'm useful. People are texting me. I'm like, I know the answers to these things. Not like, I have this family law issue. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> well, I think I want to start out with what were your thoughts as somebody who knows constitutional law, when you were watching things unfold, if you can take me back to that moment and you're starting to see what is happening, I want to know your initial reaction before we even know just the depth and all the problems, but when you are watching it, what's going through your mind? Yeah, you know, so I, I was tuned in to watch the counting and certification of the Electoral College vote because there have been a lot of lies and misrepresentations about what happened in the election. And so I think this constitutional milestone, which normally, you know, this this happens every election, um, every presidential election, normally we just don't pay attention to it. But, um, you know, I was hoping that this kind of constitutional milestone would maybe put to rest some of those lies about the election, that there was fraudulent, etc. So when it became clear that there was this impending siege of the Capitol, and especially once, you know, the vice president and the speaker were escorted off the floor. And, you know, and then when they cut the feed, you know, it became clear that there was something really dangerous going on. And that is the disruption of constitutional democracy. And thwarting the constitutional operation of the government, that is sedition, that is insurrection. And, you know, so starting to realize that that was what was taking place, this wasn't just a rally, even a rally marked with 
some violence, but that there was the breach of the Capitol, the delay, fortunately, not the complete obstruction, but the delay of this constitutional process of certifying the Electoral College vote. That is incredibly serious. And I think the moment that really gave me chills initially on that day, obviously seeing later footage of, you know, the guns drawn and the desecration and and the threat to lives, seeing that later. But on that day, seeing the Confederate flag being carried after this breach of the Capitol and after shutting down this operation of constitutional democracy, you know, that really chilled me. But I think it also crystallized what's going on which is a fight with our nation's progress toward truly multiracial democracy. And that Confederate flag symbolizes to me, you know, what exactly we are still grappling with, you know, something that we never fully came to terms with after the Civil War. I encourage everyone to uh, learn about the history of Reconstruction after the Civil War, because there's so many parallels to what we're dealing with now in terms of the promise and progress toward equality, and then the ways in which that progress has been thwarted by people who are opposed to that true, equal, just, inclusive society. So it was a very emotional day for me, honestly, watching, um, you know, I live in DC. This is my town. I had my son here. I'm raising my family here. I am a native Californian, but I, I feel very strongly ties to this city. And as also as a constitutional lawyer, all those things together. And then fearing for people who I know who work on the Hill and getting texts from friends of mine who are staffers. It was frightening and sad and shameful. Do you have any reaction to what we've been hearing about some, um, without getting into specifics, but some Republican members of Congress saying that they're scared to say anything more than what they've already said or or vote for impeachment or to move it forward because they feel like their lives are going to be threatened by, you know, certain segments of Trump supporters. Sounds to me like that those are legitimate concerns. That said, don't we elect people because they're they're gonna have some strength and they're gonna have some guts and they're gonna put, you know, I want to say their lives ahead of everything else, but I'm struggling with that a lot. Like when, when I hear that, like, I get it, you feel for yourself, you feel for your family, but what are you doing in public office? I'd love to hear your thoughts regarding that. Yeah, so I think that when you make the choice to be in public office or even just a public facing person, or maybe even just even a private person who stands up for something that you believe in. Well, I guess just to make it personal, look, so I've had legitimate death threats made against me. I've had the FBI call me to let me know this for being a progressive constitutional lawyer who sometimes goes on Fox News and talks about our progressive, equal, and inclusive constitution. And did that scare me? Yes. Do I still do my job every day? Absolutely. And, you know, even more than that, there are so many members of Congress, particularly the women of color, who get these threats every single day and still show up and act with principle and courage. And I don't want to minimize that fear because it's real, but you still need to do what's right. And frankly, if it were me and I was afraid of, you know, my own constituents, I would think long and hard about what kind of movement I was a part of and what I could do to make it better. So, you know, I don't think that's an excuse for not doing what's right at all. I think I have a couple questions about this second impeachment and that how is it that 
one would prove that Trump's speech was the causal factor. Because it seems like that, since he didn't actually go to the Capitol, since he's not the one breaking in, how is it that you established that it, had it not been for him, that event would not have taken place? And then the other thing was, I guess I want to know more about what aid and comfort means to, to people who are committing an insurrection or crimes, because when he said, we love you, go home, what counts as aid and comfort? What does that mean? First and foremost, I want to be totally clear that the constitutional standard for impeachment is not a criminal standard. So the Constitution talks about in grounds for impeachment being high crimes and misdemeanors. And if you look at the history of impeachment, they were particularly concerned about abuse of power, undermining democracy in crucial ways that might not be fully remedied just through the electoral process. And so the idea that a criminal act might be itself impeachable is certainly true, but an impeachable act does not also need to be criminal. It's like, it's ambiguous, like philosophy courses. Oh, whatever. That's one way, to, that's one way to think about it. It's very, very, wouldn't you say so, Elizabeth? And you know what <laughs> I was going to offer was a perfect logic. It's like all, all lions are cats, but not all cats are lions. So I was going to go the logic group, but thanks for you're welcome. You're welcome. Making, never, never <laughs> suggesting that I would just wonder so, about it. Okay. Didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, no, so actually, it's quite clear. Um, so uh, not that philosophy is unclear, but, um, <laughs> but this is actually very clear. It, you do not have to have committed a crime and you don't have to prove an impeachable offense to a reasonable doubt standard. So, okay. you know, impeachment is really in many ways a political process. And it's something that the Constitution gives to our elected leaders. The House under the Constitution has the sole power to impeach, and the Senate has the sole power to convict upon articles of impeachment and issue punishments. And so really beyond that, there isn't a lot, you know, unlike the criminal system where you have to prove, in many cases, intent, you have to prove particular aspects of a criminal code, impeachment is not like that. And you know, I, I think that in this particular case, whether or not Trump also committed a crime, whether he also committed incitement or whether he also is guilty of conspiracy to commit sedition, that is something that I think and hope will be determined later. But when it comes to impeachment, the facts that we know are enough for me and for the majority of the members of the House that voted on those articles of impeachment to impeach him. So, you know, I think a lot of people are confused about how this actually works, although this is the second time we've done it. So now we're, you know, we're all experts now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so he is impeached. The House impeached him. He is impeached. Whether he will be convicted of the articles of impeachment is now what we're talking about. So last time, again, Trump was impeached. He wasn't convicted. He was acquitted of those articles of impeachment. So now we look to the trial and whether he'll actually be convicted. But you don't need to prove, you don't need to prove causation. You don't need to prove those elements of aid and comfort. You can simply show that he abused his power and undermined democracy by uh, supporting and inciting people to move on the Capitol and not to condemn this violence. That's a great point. He's impeached. That's it. Now it goes to the Senate and they might have a trial. Other things that are occurring within the district where you are, the U.S. attorney within the district has said that they're looking into char uh, filing charges. They're looking into those kinds of offenses by, by Trump as well as the, the others that were speaking with him. That's going to be a true criminal you know, investigation where they'll get the FBI 
FBI involved to do everything. And, and to, to my knowledge, and, and I, I am not, like, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, and I think it's critical that Gwen not cut that part out. I'm a transactional guy. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I did take constitutional law. However, what everyone is talking about these days is the Brandenburg versus Ohio case. If District of Columbia is going to be going after Trump, that's going to be a critical case that they're going to need to kind of parse through. Is that what your understanding is as well? I think that may be one of the most ill-used parts of the Constitution by the general public and also by lawyers, not you, Rudy, uh, (laughs) is the First Amendment, you know, like... Anytime someone does something you don't like, it's not a violation of the First Amendment. Like if you say something dumb and I tell you you're dumb and I don't invite you to any of my parties anymore, that's not a First Amendment violation. Free speech doesn't mean you get to say whatever you want without consequences. You know, so there is an argument here that President Trump's speech would be protected. And there is this case which actually deals with a a KKK member. So again, you know, think about where you're finding comfort, but um, about whether or not a KKK member's incitement of eventual racist violence was protected by the First Amendment. And in that case, they talked about the criminal statute at issue in that case being overbroad. So, you know, there are a couple principles at play here. One, we know that perhaps a, a good colloquial description of the First Amendment, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. So you can't say things that are going to foreseeably lead to harm or violence. So one, you could argue that this maybe falls within that category. But two, there's a separate public officials doctrine, which actually there has been some decent criticism of, but it's the law, that public officials speaking within their official capacity have more limited First Amendment rights than a private citizen who is not a public official would. The Supreme Court has held that several times. So that will definitely come into play as well as it relates to President Trump's statements on that day. But I think that's a really important point that there is going to need to be an investigation that gets into more of the facts here. And I don't know exactly how it will relate to President Trump. Um, That's why you have the investigation. But it's serious. And we have this norm, which I think is, is a good thing and should be taken seriously, that the incoming administration of a president doesn't use its Department of Justice to prosecute political opponents. There's a good reason for that, because you don't want, you know, kind of vengeance or political retribution to be a justification, and especially when you have the vast power of the FBI, the Department of Justice, the entire prosecutorial system of the federal government behind you. But at the same time, when I think about this, I feel like letting this go consequence-free could be even more undermining for our constitutional democracy than in this case following the norm of not investigating or prosecuting a political opponent. Would you say then that, I'm parsing through what you're saying, yeah, he's been impeached, but sounds like what you're saying is that's not enough. Oh, I I think that's right. I think, you know, I, I think that, I think impeachment is entirely appropriate and that is a congressional remedy. And the reason, I just want to be clear for folks who think like this is just like, you know, why are we doing this? He's going to be out of office anyway. Part of the important reason for doing it is because there are two outcomes, two punishments essentially that you can get as a result of impeachment. And that is removal from office, which is the one we think about most of all. The second one is disqualification from ever holding federal public office again. And that is what's really important here. Because, you know, I heard a poll just this morning that 
um, I think it was like more than 50% of Republicans still think that Donald Trump should be the 2024 candidate for the party. And so when you have someone who is so destructive of our fundamental principles of democracy, including in the way we saw in this siege of the Capitol, I think that that disqualification punishment is incredibly important. And then frankly, also just looking forward, I think it's important for Congress to say, you cannot do this. So Donald Trump, you cannot do this, but other people to come, you cannot do this. So yes, so I think impeachment is very important as a congressional remedy, but I think also if crimes were committed, and if those crimes reached the highest level of the White House, this is such a serious crime against democracy that I think it should be investigated and prosecuted if that's what the facts come out with. And Merrick Garland, who's President-elect Biden's nominee to be attorney general, you know, kind of made his name prosecuting domestic terrorism cases, uh, the Oklahoma City bomber. So he knows about domestic terrorism, and I think he'll take it seriously. I think one of the most frustrating things for me to see during the impeachment hearings the other day was the argument that one representative just flat out said, what's the point? Because he's going to be out of office. And that is absolutely irrelevant. There is nothing about the time in which you commit impeachable offenses that would determine whether or not you should be impeached. But I mean, the point is partly the the principle of the matter, like you're saying, going forward. And I'm also thinking that there were a bunch of causal factors that led up to this moment. Some people on the House the other day wanted to make the case of Antifa or Black Lives Matter and all those protests. And so I've been thinking about it. It would be disingenuous to not admit that there was burning, that there was looting, that there was some violence as a result of those movements. So what is the difference between that and then what happened the other day? And I think it was with the murder of George Floyd. There was this underscoring principle of a historical reckoning, a desire for justice, a desire for equality, that was what was pushing those movements. As opposed to what happened the other day is that it was underscored by a lie, by the QAnon, by the idea that the election was stolen. And so going forward, how do we start to remedy? What what do we do? Do we teach media literacy or do we hold places accountable for spreading conspiracy theories and then the the people who are in office, people who have university degrees and know that this stuff is all a lie, should they be held accountable for spreading it for their own political gain? Oh my gosh, so much to there. I mean, so first, that false equivalency makes me angry to my core. You know, yeah. the protesters who are protesting racist policing and white supremacist violence are protesting something real, protesting something that is a breach of the social contract that we have with each other in this country. They're protesting the fact that the people who they look are supposed to be able to look to to protect them, the people who their taxpayer dollars support are more of a danger to them than not. That is a real thing. That is a deep injustice. And while there might have been some violence or unlawful activities as a tertiary part of that righteous protest, that's one thing. This insurrection that we saw last week is based, as you said, on a lie. And it is itself, instead of trying to renew the social contract, it is an attempt to breach the social contract. It is not saying we want our representatives to 
to actually represent us and to make good on the values of equality and equal justice for all in the Constitution. It was an attempt to thwart the Constitution. It was an attempt to overthrow a legitimately elected government based on lies. And so the question is, what do we do, as you said? First, I think that, you know, as we've seen from other contexts of radicalization, deplatforming does work. And, you know, I think that the steps that Twitter took, that other tech companies took, I think they were the right thing to do. And again, on the First Amendment, the First Amendment applies to government entities. Twitter is not a government entity. So while many people on Twitter themselves actually try to look to the First Amendment values for how they interact with their users, the First Amendment does not explicitly apply to them because they are a private company. And the whole kind of, you know, again, kind of a general public concept of the First Amendment is that it um, allows for the marketplace of ideas to decide on what ideas are good and bad instead of the government making that decision for you. And so basically what we saw with Twitter, um, what we saw with the Simon and Schuster deciding not to publish Josh Hawley's books, is the marketplace of ideas deciding that these ideas are trash and don't belong there. Um, you know, I think that's one thing, but I think also people absolutely need to be held accountable. And I think one of the things that has made me the most angry is seeing how even after, even the same day that members of Congress had to hide in their offices, had to have officers with guns drawn, had to put on their gas masks to escape, their colleagues still got up. Josh Hawley still stood up there. Ted Cruz still stood up there and said things that they know are not true. Josh Hawley went to Yale Law School just like I did. And I know that he knows better than all of this. And so his fancy degree is giving a legitimacy to these lies. And that is very dangerous. And, you know, I think that it's really a matter of the people, the donors, the voters holding them accountable because they absolutely are responsible. In all of the episodes that we've talked about this with Jeff Cortezzi, we actually parse through and discuss the fact that there's this concept of a private business that has rights. When you click and you sign up for Facebook, and you sign up for Twitter, those hundred pages of, of that license agreement that literally nobody ever reads pretty much says in there that you're not going to, there, there's a lot of things that you agree that you're not going to do, but nobody takes the time to actually read that. That is a private business. If you're going to use their platform, especially you're going to use their platform for free, right? Facebook is for free. Twitter is for free. You're not paying for it. You're truly locked into whatever that private business says you can and cannot do. It is not a public service in any way, shape, or form. That private business can dictate what it wants. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a court. They can kick people off if they want to. They kick plenty of people off. They kick off bots. They kick off all kinds of things. So what needs to happen, and we said during that episode, and, and I'm glad that we're bringing this up again, is education. Education to our public, people in the United States about here is a function of the government, the federal government, the state government, the local government. Here is private business. We do, it, there's only very few states in the United States that actually require civics and education about our government system. Very few states, not enough states teach the basics of government. So if you want to talk about, okay, how do we make things better? We must require all 50 states in elementary school, in high school, and probably in college before you can get a degree, you must learn about how the United States functions. I think that will go a long way to solving these problems. Well, I keep coming back. I mean, Rudy, you know that I've mentioned that 
I really loved the memoir of Queen Noor. And one of the projects that she undertook was she went around the Middle East and she looked at elementary school textbooks. What were they teaching their kids? That was one of her projects. And when I'm looking at the images of the people on Capitol Hill, the like Camp Auschwitz sweater, the just the Confederate flag, and all I can think about is how did that happen? Like where, what, what school did they go to? What books were they reading? What is their community like? How in the hell does that happen? And I just feel more, um, I guess, passionate about the notion of education and paying attention to what is going on in our elementary school, elementary schools. Cause I think that in addition to a civics lesson, just basic literature on the different viewpoints of what it means to be American, because that was just so awful to see. And it scares me to say, okay, I'm sharing a country with these people. I don't feel like I'm in the same country. And they probably don't think that they're in the same country as me. It was just absolutely just mind boggling. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, like you are never going to get an objection for me that people uh, should study more civics and uh, American government and history. But I think, you know, I, I don't think that we can ascribe this all to a lack of education, you know, because again, Josh Hawley went to the same fancy law school, Ivy League law school that I did. You know, Stephen Miller, architect of the horribly racist immigration policies, the cruelty that we've seen from this Trump administration. He's from Santa Monica, California. The schools there are very good. I don't know their civics curriculum, and we, we've seen as more of these stories have come out about who was at the Capitol insurrection, there are CEOs of companies, there are fairly high ranking lawyers and companies. I think that, you know, sometimes it's easier to think that it's folks who haven't had the opportunity to be exposed to things and that it isn't just that. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, when we look to ways that other countries have grappled with their own histories, and again, getting back to what I mentioned at the beginning of this, the Civil War and Reconstruction and the need to understand that history, you know, I think understanding the roots of what we saw last week, understanding the echoes, you know, the way that it echoes throughout history, you know, there were white mobs who overturned an election in Wilmington, North Carolina, because they did not like the effects of multiracial democracy. We like to say this is not who we are. This shouldn't be who we are. But in a lot of ways, this is what America is. Now we get to choose whether it is the America that we will live in, but we need to speak truth about the roots of what we saw last week. And as Congresswoman Cori Bush said on the House floor yesterday, the roots are white supremacy. And I think that we have to face that head on. There can't be unity, there can't be reconciliation without truth. There's a reason these commissions are called truth and reconciliation. It's because you need truth first. I think it's very important for us to recognize that truth. To your point, I totally agree that, you know, oh, a lack of civics education doesn't explain people like Josh and Stephen Miller. I've given hope, uh, given up hope on those types of people. You're not going to change those types of people. It's in their DNA. Those people are hopeless. There are, and the people that, you know, storm the Capitol and they're holding on to the Confederate flag and they're truly hardcore white supremacists. I don't have any hope for those people. I truly believe that while that is a powerful segment of the United States population, is still somewhat of the of, of a minority. Yes, Trump got 70 million voters, but you, you're not going to convince me that every single voter that voted for Trump is an actual, you know, hardcore white supremacist. Because I know plenty of people of color that actually voted for Trump, notwithstanding my wanting to cut them out of my life, they've done it. So it's hard to just kind of brandish everybody. And I don't like the paint uh, of things with white. Um, 
wide brushes. But on a going forward basis, I do think one of the critical functions for my children and other children that are here in the United States, and, and we are racially integrating and there are more mixed marriages. And, and thankfully, Cal- like you, Californians are leaving California for a whole other host of issues from California and are going to go into other states and hopefully, you know, get a little bit of that California vibe out there. I have hope for our country. I don't have hope for white supremacists. To me, you know, they just need to all die off because the breeding and then the hatred starts from from an early age. They were trained by their parents and they're going to train their children. And that I don't have any hope for. But I, but I do have hope for basic knowledge of civics and government is so long as a, education is addressed. I, I mean, that was, that was a statement there. So I'll put that aside. One thing that I've looked into to kind of address the white supremacy problem is that some people say that what happened uh, in 1870 or 1871, when the federal government brought up the KKK Act and they went into South Carolina and they arrested a whole bunch of people and they were able to bring the KKK underground for many, many years is something that they should do now. You as a constitutional scholar and a constitutional historian, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what we can actually do to bring down white supremacy. Well, first, I think we need to, I guess, address the other side of it, which is the systemic racism that has been the result of white supremacist ideology, which is very real and pervasive. I totally hear you on your you know, point earlier but I, th- I think focusing on dismantling the systemic racism also implicates, frankly, um, you know, I, I do not want liberals or non-Trump voters to think that they are not part of the problem. Because absolutely, we, uh, you know, I, I doubt that there were a lot of Biden voters uh, storming the Capitol. So I don't want to equate it in that sense. But if we're talking about the larger issue of white supremacy, there are plenty of folks across the ideological spectrum who, if you're not actively working to dismantle systemic racism, then I would say you're not being part of the solution. So I don't want to make it seem like it's such a bright line between those groups. I think that focusing on the way that we go about dismantling systemic racism is a legal and political issue. It's also, again, a truth issue. We need to talk about the ways in which our housing system, our education system, our criminal justice system, our mortgage system, our roads, environmental policies, workplace regulations, all of these things are infected with systemic racism. We need to be honest about that. There needs to be an honest look at it. I think that a lot of the reckoning over the summer with the movement for Black Lives surfaced that for a lot of, frankly, white folks and non-Black folks who had not been paying attention in the way that they should. You know, I had conversations with people who are well-educated, not kind of the, like, storming the Capitol white supremacists, who were like, slavery is ended, you know? And so that mindset, again, it does get back to the learning of American history and the learning of Reconstruction and the learning of Jim Crow. You know, our democracy as a real democracy is only a few decades old because even after the 15th Amendment, which gave people the right to vote free from racial discrimination, even after the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, it was actually not that long ago in 1920, but until we have a meaningful enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, you know, which really probably like the 1970s, that's really the beginning of our modern democracy. And so this is still something that's very fragile. And I think being honest about the remnants of the slavery institution in this country and the ideology that upheld it, the way that it still infects our legal, political, and social systems, and the ways in which we need to work together to protect 
our multiracial democracy is really important. And it is a huge thing. I don't have all the answers, but I am very lucky to work in coalition with a lot of civil rights leaders who are working on these issues across the spectrum. And I am hopeful that, especially after people made their voices heard this summer and then made their votes count at the ballot box, bringing people to Congress like Cori Bush, like Jamal Bauman, I think that will make a difference. And then seeing that President-elect Biden has put civil rights leaders like Benita Gupta in the number three position, or at least nom- intended to nominate her, um, and the Senate should absolutely confirm her, number three in the Senate, a civil rights leader, Kristen Clark, in the head of the Civil Rights Division, people who understand the way that our government needs to work very hard to dismantle systemic racism. That, that gives me some hope. Elizabeth, yeah. I, I got a question. I took a lot of history courses. I was hardcore into punk rock when when I was when we were all in high school together, and punk rock did educate me a lot about the injustices in the world. And I studied a little bit of that at UCLA. However, I must admit, I truly didn't realize the systemic problems from slavery. I mean, go back to the founding of the Constitution, all the problems, you know, Dred v. Scott, everything, all the all the all, I didn't really. Re- understand the systemic legal problems of slavery and the remnants of it until I went to law school. I don't know if, if you had that same kind of experience, but it was really then that it hit me. And I'll tell you, it, it had profound effects upon my life. And I do fear that you know most Americans are not going to go to law school. What can we do better to educate other than what I kind of suggested about starting in elementary school and going forward, like learning the law and how the history of the law and the impacts of it. Do you have any suggestions of going forward? Yeah. I mean, so first of all, you must have gone to a very enlightened law school because I think most law schools do not teach this. Um, you know, obviously we learn about equal protection, maybe anti-discrimination law. I took a great anti-discrimination law class from Drew Days, who just passed away. That was amazing. But, you know, I think a lot of these things, you know, so many of us just need to teach ourselves now and then do better in the future. We need to do that work because the resources are out there. And, you know, they're out there for young people as well. Learning about these things, I think, can sometimes be very daunting. Um, You think like there is so much to do. But first of all, I think that, you know, the idea that you can just get tired and be like, oh, oh," you know, I I can't think about this. That is the height of white privilege because other people don't have the um, ability to not worry about racism for the day or two days or most of your life. It's something that also should be counteracted by recognizing the joys and benefits for all of a truly multiracial democracy. One of the things that I think we've seen with a lot of these election organizing efforts like we just saw in Georgia is that you win when you find commonalities among communities. And that's what we are eventually working toward. And so that I think is very hopeful. Do you have any books that come to your mind? One of mine is The New Jim Crow. I really liked that. Yes. What is, what is a book that comes to your mind for our listeners of something where when you say like educate yourself, where's a, a starting yes. point? So I think Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow is incredibly important and powerful. I think Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. That's um, so hard to read. That's I know, so but- that's, um, what, that's what I think about age appropriate. That's a hard one to read. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, would I give that to like a, you know, <laughs> no, no one in probably not. 
Um, oh, I don't know. Again, like I'm not the expert in that. There are experts out there who yeah. exist. And then I think on Reconstruction, Eric Foner's work, he wrote this magisterial volume on that's called Reconstruction, which is like this thick. And I will not even ask you to read that, even though it's great. He has a newer book called The Second Founding, uh-huh. which if everyone made that their 2021 resolution to read that book, it would make me so happy. Um, Eric Foner is a historian of Reconstruction. And uh, The Second Founding, I think, is a great encapsulation of, um, you know, if you want to think about our country and the Constitution, you shouldn't really be thinking, well, you should, but you should just be thinking of George Washington. You should be thinking of Senator Jacob Howard. You should be thinking of these folks from the Reconstruction who put the 14th Amendment, who put the 15th Amendment into our Constitution and really made our government, um, like we were talking about the First Amendment earlier. Most people don't know that until after the Civil War, the First Amendment only applied to the federal government. The states could restrict your free speech all they wanted. And in fact, they did harshly punish free speech of abolitionists around the time of the Civil War. The 14th Amendment changed that. So really the country we live in is because of the constitutional amendments passed after the Civil War. One of my, we, we've talked about this book here and one of my favorite books, uh, the, the Raffle, in part two of it, it starts, it's, it's a dystopian book about this crazy future of the United States. Key factors in that dystopian book is the way they explain this whole new dystopian new United States that comes about. They actually talked about, well, we dismantled the 14th Amendment. And once we dismantled the 14th Amendment, here are all the implications of it. So for me as a lawyer, I was like, oh, this person actually knows the importance of the 14th Amendment. Most Americans don't really know what's the 14th Amendment. I've never heard of that one. Does it start there? Do we educate people? Well, here's the four, here's where you get all of your rights from uh, yeah, that come down through the, the U.S. Constitution. This is why we need to fight for this 14th Amendment. I'm, I'm just curious, like, have you had conversations with people that didn't know the importance of it? Yes, 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 yes. So someone super rich who's listening needs to give my organization like $10 million <laughs> to engage in a cultural education exercise. Because Those are Rudy's ex- listeners, not mine, by the way. Okay, thank Thank you. Um, you know, because if people, you know, so, and I, so I taught, this is like, you just made me so happy. Um, so this is one of my biggest little projects in my life, not a little project. You know, people across the country know kind of what that you mean by the First Amendment. If you say the First Amendment, most people think like free speech. A lot of people, even if they're wrong, have some concept of the Second Amendment. These are things that have some cultural resonance with Americans. Even maybe like the right to remain silent, you know, Miranda from Law and Order, people sort of know. But trust me, almost anything you like about the Constitution, you like because of the 14th Amendment. And no one knows anything about the 14th Amendment. So I would love through like cultural influencers. I think it's school. I think it's also pop culture. This idea of the 14th Amendment and what it is So equal protection of the laws, that's in the 14th Amendment. You know, the Declaration of Independence really gets into our Constitution only in the 14th Amendment. You know, the ideals of equality and liberty, and, you know, those are written in through the 14th Amendment. The states having to respect your constitutional rights, that's because of the 14th Amendment. The idea of citizenship, that federal, that our U.S. citizenship is something that is a birthright, that if you're just born on this soil, you're automatically a U.S. citizen, that was not codified in the Constitution until the 14th Amendment. So yes, somehow that needs to happen. We need more culturally significant books, more, it needs to be in movies, it needs to be in television shows, it needs to be 
on social media, you know, like I said, I, I love the raffle. And the, one of the main reasons why is because they actually, they actually talked about the 14th amendment and how important it was. And you just, I love that so much. You just don't see that. And, and it, once again, it all comes down to education. Like I really, if we got to start young, I hope, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that much about your organization. I'd love to hear more about it, but I'd love to hear if any wing of that is, yeah, we, here, here's a fund or uh, donations or something that we're doing in order to kind of roll out some basic civics because knowledge is power not only for yourself, but it, against ignorance and being influenced by people who want to twist your mind. That's what I think. Yes, absolutely. We are a, a small 17 person, small but mighty force here in Washington, D.C. that works to show that if you actually look at the Constitution, the whole Constitution, a lot of folks, I think, end in the 18th century. And that Constitution, you know, while a great start, excluded a lot of people. It turned a blind eye. Well, didn't turn a blind eye. It was complicit with slavery and is not the Constitution that, frankly, all of us live under every day and most of us revere. So our organization is dedicated to showing that when you actually read the whole Constitution, it is, in its most inherent respects, a progressive document that supports progressive outcomes. And because we are so small, we make those arguments mostly in court. And the idea is that by making those arguments in court, we can appeal to judges from across the ideological spectrum. Because if you're a conservative who says you're an originalist, if I give you an argument that shows that the text and history of the 14th Amendment supports the inclusion of gay and lesbian couples in marriage equality, you should take that seriously. And I will give you that argument, and there is a great argument for that. I have originalist arguments for pretty much every progressive outcome that people care about. So we do that in the courts, we do it with Congress, and we are trying, again, any rich listeners, give me money and I'll do more. We are trying to also do that in a more publicly focused way. You know, when I go on TV and radio and, and talk to folks, that's really, you know, in large part what I'm doing. Because, you know, I think when people learn more about the Constitution, and especially I think those of us who have felt removed from it, because we were excluded at the founding, when we learn the ways in which we, the people, wrote ourselves into the constitutional story, wrote our liberty and our equality into the Constitution, it's very inspiring. Yeah. So rich listeners, Rudy's listeners, <laughs> the usconstitution.org, right? Yes. And okay. frankly, if you're not a rich listener, please also go to our website. I'll link it in the show notes. It's, I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. It, it's a great website. As, as I said, it, it's, it's really easy to navigate. It's packed with great information. It's, um, it's digestible. It's f fantastic. I will be spending a lot more time. I, now I need to, whenever I have any constitutional questions, I know where to go. I mean, they're, yeah, they're exactly. right there. They're right there. We do it all. We, we do. do it all. 100%. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. And this was really nice. It was really nice to connect with you. And I've got so much on my mind about what's going on in the news. And I appreciate you giving your time to the show. For you know, My students will listen to this. And it's just, it's very cool to have an expert on of your caliber to talk about just real time events. Yeah, thank you for having fight. me on. And, and I will say I was a, a part philosophy major, politics, philosophy, and economics. I was outnumbered by having two lawyers. Now you've no. got oh, somebody studied philosophy. So there, so there, Rudy. Okay. I'm, 
I'm, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. Just keep up the good fight. You guys are doing, <laughs> you guys are doing a kick-ass job. Well, wait, no, I have to ask. So did, let's say in some of your discussions, it's some of the stuff like about free speech, you're reminding me a bit of John Stuart Mill's work. Does that, mm, does, sure. is that threaded into, because this idea of that you, you have rights, but that the government cannot impose itself on you unless the burden of proof is on them to demonstrate that the right would cause more harm, like the fire in a theater. So I was wondering if that, or, or, or do you have a favorite philosopher or something that stuck with you? Oh my gosh, yeah. that's, that's amazing. Um, you know, I think that, I don't know if I have a favorite philosopher, but you know, I, I think Mill, I think is a, is a great, you know, we've thought about the way that he actually relates to the Reconstruction founders and his work was very influential in like the legal circles of that time. But I also think, you know, of people who are kind of legal philosophers like Frederick Douglass and the way in which, you know, you kind of hold this, uh, hold several principles and thoughts and truths in your mind at the same time. In some ways, it's like kind of a, uh, oh my God, I'm forgetting, like a Keatsian negative, what is the second part of that? Um, <laughs> where you hold, you know, you hold two things to be true that are actually contrary to each other. Mm-hmm. Negative capability. You know, Frederick Douglass, to me, is one of my major constitutional inspirations because he held the, these two truths together at the same time. The Constitution did not protect him and was a white supremacist document. And at the same time, the Constitution was his and stood for the liberation of Black people. And he worked to make those two truths more reconcilable and always considered, you know, grappled very much with those two truths and whether you could hold them at the same time. And he did, you know, talking about wrapping up this whole conversation, you know, I think that that's something that we also need to do. And frankly, it's what we have seen from Black and Brown and Native activists in this country. The recognition that the country has not treated them with the love and respect, frankly, that they give back to this country, but still fight every day for the country that they live in, they want to live in. And I think that is an example and a North Star for all of us. Thank you. Perfect way to wrap it up. Thank you Amen. so much. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank, have thank a you. good have a good day. And I'll be checking out your Twitter feed to see what you're saying about the next few days and what's gonna be happening with impeachment. <laughs> yeah. All well, right. let's hope that people do the right thing. Yeah. Okay. Bye, Elizabeth. Bye, Bye. guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I've linked Elizabeth Wydra's website, theusconstitution.org, to the show notes. And you can get in touch with her on Twitter, at Elizabeth Wydra. Wydra is W-Y-D-R-A. And you can get in touch with us, goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com, or on Instagram, goodisinthedetailspod. Rudy and I will be doing an Instagram Live on February 5th. That's a Tuesday at 8.30 p.m. Stop by, give us a wave, ask questions, whatever it is that you like. Okay, and I hope you're still wearing your masks, socially distanced. I hope you're enjoying your new year. And until next time, bye.